0: What's up? My name is Josiah Haken and I've been working with homeless folks for over a decade. I'm convinced that one of the biggest reasons we have not been able to solve the homelessness crisis in our country is because we fundamentally do not understand why it happens or what or can be done about it. In this podcast, I'm going to interview friends of mine who have experienced homelessness firsthand, experts who have spent years of their lives trying to provide services and resources to their unhoused neighbors. And advocates and theologians who will help us think differently about the issue altogether. You are not going to agree with everyone I interview on this podcast. You may not even agree with me, and that is okay. Let's throw out our assumptions and consider the possibility that maybe there is more to this story than we previously thought. Welcome to the Neighbors with No Doors podcast. What is up, everybody? I am so excited to have you tune in for this episode of the Neighbors with No Doors podcast. I have a very, very special guest with me, David Velasquez. Um, I hope I pronounced that correctly. Um, David is from Los Angeles, California, and currently a fourth-year medical student at Harvard who also studies business and policy. His work focuses on healthcare delivery and equity. Paying particular attention to its relationship with low-income and marginalized communities, um, I can't even tell you how perfect that is for this conversation. Welcome, David. Thank you so much for giving us a little bit of your time today.
1: Thanks so much, Josiah, for having me. Super excited to chat.
0: So, David, to start off, man, like, tell me a little bit about yourself. Like, how did you know you end up in this field? You know, you're you know at Harvard. You've been studying medicine, but you're also the specific intention to uh, low-income and marginalized communities. How did that happen? Tell me about yourself a little bit.
1: Yeah, fantastic question and a big one that honestly we could spend an hour on itself, but um, I'll try to be brief, Josiah. So uh, as you mentioned, I grew up in Los Angeles, California, uh, but that's kind of actually misleading because I moved around a lot through Southern California, and it's hard to call one place home because I moved around. Um, very often when I was younger. And, and that's because my family was very low income. So my parents were undocumented for the first six years of my life. Uh, And then after that, uh, and during that period, we were very low income, you know, $6,000 a year for six people. I have three brothers that I grew up with. Uh, And so, you know, this interest of trying to improve healthcare and just the general health and lives of people experiencing homelessness and marginalized communities in general comes from witnessing and living a lot of those experiences as, as a young child and an adolescent as well. Um, you know, lived in Los Angeles, lived in shelter homes uh, throughout, uh, as we'll get to, you know, the, that was family homelessness, which is different than adult homelessness and so forth. Um, moved throughout Southern California, went to the Antelope Valley and there you know, continued to experience a lot of these barriers, not just in terms of housing, but healthcare, right. Lack of access to healthcare, lack of access to, uh, education systems, um, or high quality education systems, I should say. Uh, And that wasn't just the case for me, but for people around me. And, you know, one thing that I noticed that uh, all these different factors led to was poor health. Mm. Uh, And so at the end of the day, you know, I I told myself, maybe I could be a doctor that comes back and really uplifts these communities that um, have poorer health because of all the reasons I've outlined and more. And so that's what initially led me to think that I could become a doctor. Obviously, no one in my family uh, had had been a doctor. My parents have the third and fourth grade education from their country uh, in Central America. And uh, my older brothers were expected to work after graduating from high school. So it was very a lonely path, a scary one, one with lots of uncertainty. But, you know, thankfully, um, because of my community, because of my parents and many others, uh, I made it here. Now, you know, here in Boston, excited to chat with you about this topic
0: is amazing. <laughs> it's so incredible. Um so so this is again this is personal, right? This is not something that's theoretical. This is not something that um you know like for me, I mean honestly I I, I come at this conversation um you know from from a position of privilege. Um I you know grew up in I grew up in West Africa. My parents were missionaries. Um, and, but, so I was surrounded by developing, developing world poverty, but I was always in the position of, of power and of privilege as, you know, the white American expat who's, who's there. Um, and so I always, you know, I always take that for, you know, we can only come into this conversation from the context that we've, you know, entered into, we've, we've come into it from, right. Um, and so I just love that, um, first of all, your story is incredible. Um, and, and second of all, just the, I love how you know, you're, you're taking your experiences and and leveraging them for maximum impact. And um, yeah, it's just incredible. So first of all, that's amazing. Um, So, so tell me like, you know, looking back, so if you were, you you and this was, like I said, personal for you, was there a moment where you look back on and you're like, man, I just realized like I realized the the inequity hit me, like, like you became aware, almost like, you know, like this consciousness of, of there are people who are doing just fine and have homes and access to education and healthcare. And I do not, or these folks around me do not. Do you have a a specific memory where that sort of realization hit you? I I do. Uh,
1: and that's such a great question. And it's one I've thought of a lot. So when I was younger, you know, age one through about 12, 13, uh, We moved around very often, as I mentioned. But to me, that was normal, right? To me, like that was life. And that's how everyone lived it. And every single time, uh, even when we were in the family shelter home, right? When you're in a family shelter home, at least back in 2001, uh, they tried to make it feel like a home. Uh, And they would have, you know, during the day, us kids, we would go and we would learn. Uh, And we celebrated my brother's birthday in a family shelter home, right? And so they really didn't make it seem like we were homeless, per se. And then even after that, so once my parents received their permanent green cards and we qualified for Section 8 housing vouchers, uh, we were in a house in Palmdale, California, and we moved every two years uh, or so, um, you know, primarily because there weren't that many protections around the program and, you know, landlords were kind of able to do what what they wanted uh, in many cases. And so, but that to me, again, was normal. It was, you know, we're moving because we want a better house because, you know, maybe this place will have a bigger backyard or... You know, the rooms would would have a bigger closet or something like that. And that's what I thought was happening up until uh, 2009. So in 2009, uh, right before high school, uh, we were living in, I can't even remember, maybe our ninth home at this point uh, in Rosemont, California. Uh, Rosemont is a very small town, about 15,000 folks uh, in Southern California. Uh, and my mother stepped out as I was playing basketball with my brothers and a few other uh, friends from our neighborhood and said, you guys got to come in, pack your stuff. We need to go. Uh, it was very, very uh, uh, abrupt. And we did that. My brothers and I have three brothers, as mentioned. We went home inside. We packed. Uh, and they told us that we had to leave. Uh, so our house was foreclosed. Um, and it was you know at, at the peak uh, of the recession, essentially. Uh, and I was about to enter high school. This was the summer before high school. So at that age, I'm becoming more aware of what's happening around me. Uh, and, you know, quite frankly, I still didn't understand when my mom said, go pack your stuff and get everything in the van and we got to go find a place. And we were going to spend the night in, in our van. Uh, thankfully, we had a neighbor who uh, lent my, my father some money. So we had a chance to go into a motel. Uh, and we stayed in this motel for about two and a half months. So we stayed in this motel, very small, one bedroom motel with a studio, um, you know, in a very deserted road in Southern California uh, called uh, Sierra Highway and uh, I was sleeping on a bed with my two older brothers, uh, and my little brother was on the bed next to us with my parents. Uh, And we spent a summer there for about two and a half months, uh, right before high school. And when I really, you know, that's when I really started noticing uh, something's different here. Like, this isn't normal. Like, this isn't how I see my friends in middle school and in high school. Um, And when it really hit me was when I was at basketball practice. I loved basketball, basketball was my first love and that's what brought me and my brothers together. And we, I would go to basketball practice and uh, when my friends would offer me a ride home, I always declined. And I would always say, no, no, it's okay. And I started realizing it was because I didn't want them to see what was happening. I didn't want them to know that I didn't have a house to go to. Uh, and so I would just walk, I would walk about the, the mile and a half to two miles uh, back and forth every day. Um, and i would reflect uh, you know on those walks and very similar story happened when you know our bus was coming back from a basketball tournament and we drove by the motel and saw the motel uh, and, and I didn't want to look at it mm. right and and as a 13 year old at the time um i was I, I was honestly um embarrassed i was ashamed right because I was in that situation my friends weren't they all had a house not that they were wealthy right we were living in a pretty low-income area of California. And so they weren't wealthy at all, but we were just really poor. And so that's when I started noticing, uh, you know, all these differences between us and them, uh, and then later on between us and society in general, and how, you know, it, it wasn't just us too, right? It, it's There were many people. There were people who were just across the street in the other side of the motel who were also spending, you know, most of their nights there. And so uh, anyway, I can talk about this episode a lot because there are a lot of, you know, different components to it, but that's that's the first time when I realized, wow, like we we are poor and we are essentially homeless at this point.
0: So, and and how did that, I mean, I don't, maybe it's just the, you know, the the wannabe psychologist in me, right? Like <laughs> um, like what is it that I'm just curious like as you look back on that season and 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 I know we're we're going to get into healthcare here in a minute, but um, you know, wh- what is it about our society? I mean, that, that leads 13, 14, 12, you know, to, to feel ashamed, um, because of their economic status. Cause I remember there was one time I was in, I was doing outreach in Harlem and this father and his teenage son, um, someone had handed them a flyer for our outreach, um, uh, vehicle and the, the location that we go to. And, um they had nowhere to go and so someone supernaturally really just handed them a flyer randomly i still don't know how they got it but they walked like an hour and a half um just to get to our outreach and i was sitting across from them in our in a little office that we have in our our mobile outreach vehicle um and i remember seeing the look on the face of the of the 16 year old um as his dad was talking to me about about their situation and and i remember just feeling so just heartbroken um for it was just it was he was just so ashamed um and I just then I remember feeling so much pity for the dad. The dad was trying so hard to make the best of the situation and stay positive. And um, and I just anyway, i and so I'm just thinking to myself as you're telling I, I kind of see you in that story, uh, you know, lined up with this this young this young kid that I saw um, and and just think to myself, what is it about our society that, you know, that leads us to, to, to that point of shame around. Factors that we have no control over and, and things that you didn't do anything wrong. There's no, there's nothing that you did to deserve that situation. It just happened. And, but then there's, a, but there's that shame component. I don't know if you, if, if you want to talk, if you can give me like 30 seconds. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I, what do you think about that? How does, how does that happen? And why, why, why do we make people, why do we make kids feel like crap about the fact that they don't, they don't live in a decent place?
1: Right, I, I think it comes down to one word and it's stigma.
0: Mm. Um, and I think you
1: you actually probably, uh, you know, have done a lot of work around this, around engaging people, right, who are experiencing homelessness. I think we have a tendency, just even thinking back, right, so when I lived in Los Angeles, we were right by Skid Row. Uh, Skid Row has, as you likely know, a lot of people who are experiencing homelessness. Um, and even us, right, as low-income folks in that area, like, the, there, there was this stigma, right? There was a Oh, you know just walk straight kind of thing like you know just don't pay attention to them almost uh and i think that translates over to you when you yourself are experiencing homelessness even though you're not say on skid row you are in a sense homeless right and so um, i think it has to do with stigma and you feel that and you feel like others will look at you and say oh no like you're, you're you know experiencing homelessness or you're homeless and you know, you're, you're probably, you know, dirty or like whatever, right? All these bad words that people associate with homelessness. And, and I think it has to do with that. It's a very quick answer, but um, you know, I, I think it's around the stigma.
0: No, I, and I, yeah, I love that. I mean, I, it's obviously terrible, but I mean, I love that you've, you've summed it up with just that one word. Cause I think that, that tells me that there's something we can do about it. Right. That tells me that we can de-stigmify uh, homelessness and, and really make an impact and hopefully, you know, for the next generation of kids, you know, I know, you know, I think I read somewhere that the average age of the homeless of of a homeless person in the United States right now is like 10 or 11 years old. Um, and so we have our work cut out for us. Right. So, um, so, so tell me a little bit about like, okay, so getting into med school, like how, so you wanted to, you know, go into the medicine field. How did you get from California to Harvard?
1: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, big question. I'll, I'll try to be brief. Um, I think, you know, I can take this w- many ways, but uh, in summary, I think I had this mission, right, as I've talked about, of going back to a community or somehow uplifting those who have been silenced, those who don't have a home and have felt marginalized um, and have historically been marginalized their entire lives. And um, I, what I did in college was around that, right? I worked, I started an organization in college, right, to bring healthcare services to low income folks in the Los Angeles area. So like we would cold email doctors, dentists, nurses, Planned Parenthood, like all these organizations and say, hey, look, there are clearly people here who don't have access to healthcare. We need your help. We're going to set up this health fair. Can you please come on this date at this time? And that's what we did, right? It was very like, you know, get get your hands dirty, like just try to get out there and do something because we know the problem exists. So now let's try to solve it obviously that is a very band-aid solution but as a college student um, it was it was all that I could do and so um, doing those kinds of things like basically sticking to that mission uh, I think is what ultimately led me here to, to Harvard Medical School and you know beyond that I mean there are other things that you know college students consider uh, teaching research etc uh, my research later on uh, became more around underserved populations in college it's very easy to just Try to tick some boxes on your path to medical school, and you know I, I advise a lot of students here, and and that's typically what we see some sometimes. And so, um, you know, my mission was okay. Let's do some research, see if I like that. Uh, let's do some teaching. Love teaching, you know, love love being able to empower others. Uh, and so ultimately, I think it was all those experiences combined together with that mission that I talked about at the beginning, which. Has been uh, set in stone essentially, and hasn't really moved uh, ever since I I had it, uh, which got me here to to Cambridge and or and Boston, really.
0: So let's talk about that healthcare aspect, right? Because and that was the, you know, a lot of folks I think, um, you know, in well-meaning, um, you know, folks in in, in our country um, seem to be under the impression that well, what's the problem? Isn't healthcare free for? for people in poverty? Don't they get, don't they get free access to, you know, isn't that what Medicaid is? Don't they, don't they, don't what's, what's the issue? Why, why are there people, you know, using the ERs as, as their you know, as a revolving door for, for healthcare access? Um, What is, you know, so I just would love for you to kind of talk a little bit about sort of on a macro level, our our healthcare system um, and, and really some of the pros and cons and, and with, as it relates to, Homelessness and and the unhoused community, if you, if you can,
1: absolutely. Uh, so much to say here. I, I will. I, I think it's important to preface this by saying uh, this isn't a problem with healthcare alone, right? It, it's really the social care system that needs fixing. Like we need to have more affordable housing. We need to have uh, more affordable childcare, better education, and so forth. As I've talked about and, and seeing those problems growing up, but healthcare is definitely a player and one in which we see problems and also solutions. So uh, when I think about problems in healthcare and how they relate to people experiencing homelessness, uh, there are two big buckets. Uh, the first one is around access. So healthcare access uh, in, this, in our country has been an issue. We don't have universal healthcare. Uh, for the general population, about 90% of people have health insurance. Um, it, It fluctuates back and forth depending on the administration, but typically it's around 90%. When we look at people experiencing homelessness, some estimates show that it's about 40%, right? And that is clearly very different than the general population. So issue number one is that people who have experienced homelessness or who are experiencing homelessness do not have access to healthcare. And that is a problem because they typically also have higher medical needs right? They have oftentimes serious mental illness. Uh, they oftentimes will have uh, other conditions such as COPD, congestive heart failure, etc., cetera, um, and a variety of others that, that we can talk about. Not only that, but them living on the streets will often result in medical problems that they then need coverage for. And so this, this issue of healthcare access is a big one. And um, you know, in, in terms of what's good, what can we do? Uh, there have been organizations like here uh, in Boston Boston Healthcare for the Homeless Program, right who has a much higher insurance rate when you look at their patients who have who, who when you look at their patients who almost all are patients experiencing homelessness. Um, and so they're doing a much better job, but that that requires engagement, uh, right? It requires going out into the community and making sure that when a patient comes in, you are signing them up for health insurance. Um, and then another kind of problem around this healthcare access is that in some states, we just haven't expanded Medicaid, right? So this program that you mentioned just now, where we are providing healthcare for people who are low income, uh, doesn't exist, or I should say, doesn't apply to certain folks, typically single, able-bodied individuals uh, in certain states. And so that has been, you know, on uh, the, the the federal government's agenda, uh, but still hasn't hasn't passed. And so access is a big one, um, and the second one is around healthcare delivery. So what are we actually doing within our hospital or outside of our hospital walls uh, to improve healthcare for this population? And, you know, when when you look, I think the first, the first problem here is that people experiencing homelessness will sometimes receive worse healthcare delivery as it relates to clinical services. There was one study, for example, in which patients who were homeless um, came in with an acute myocardial infarction, so a heart attack. Mm-hmm. Uh, And as compared to people who were housed, they had people who were experiencing homelessness, had worse access to diagnostic and therapeutic services, even though they all came in with a heart attack, right? Mm. So we first need to ensure that when patients come in, regardless of your background, whether it's around homelessness, different uh, language status, et cetera, you are receiving the same care that everyone else is receiving, which hopefully is high quality care. Um, That's the first piece. The second piece around healthcare delivery now touches on this social service aspect, which uh, over the last 10 years or so, we've seen healthcare transition more into this area. Um, I'll give you a story really quickly. Yeah. I met a patient at the hospital. Uh, I'll just say Mr. M uh, for, for confidentiality per, for purposes. And uh, you know, I saw him uh, while I was uh, at, at one of the big hospitals here on my medicine rotation. Uh, and he came in with a new diagnosis of HIV AIDS. Um, young man uh, in his thirties uh, and we took care of him. I saw him every day. Uh, we you know, gave him all the high, uh, all the best medicines that, that you could possibly receive if you come in with a diagnosis with HIV AIDS. Um, and after about three weeks, he got much better uh, to the point where we discharged him. But when we were discharging him, we didn't know where to send him because he was homeless because he had come in from a shelter home. And so what did we do? We had really no option so we asked him do you have a friend that you can probably go hang out with uh, and if so that's what we're gonna do uh and that's what happened so he ultimately went uh and he spent a couple of weeks with his friend um but what happened after that uh is that uh his friend no longer wanted him to live there right that was not a long-term solution that was a very very temporary solution so that we could discharge him somewhere so about two weeks later uh he ends up leaving the friend's home uh, and actually goes back to an emergency department, uh, and he comes back for anxiety because of that situation that was going on at home, because of the HIV/AIDS diagnosis that he just had two weeks ago, and is barely getting treatment for. Um, and this obviously creates a bigger problem, which we haven't even touched on, which is around healthcare utilization, right, for people experiencing homelessness who come into into the hospital at times for preventable preventable causes, um, and so. You know, just to summarize, there's this access issue, a delivery issue, and the delivery really comes in terms of clinical services and social services.
0: Uh, and we can do more
1: for both of them.
0: Yeah, and that's that's uh, so great. my And my questions, I mean, because what I've seen over the years is, you know getting people, like I love what you you know the access, right? Like getting getting people access to care um, in cities like New York, for example, You know, they people should be able to go into uh, emergency room or or, or different, different, you know, health centers. Um, You know, New York City has tons of medical providers. Um, But but there's also, I think, connected to the stigma um, of of homelessness. There's a lot of issues around um, the you know, what what some people might call frequent flyers or like the people who come in over and over again. Um, and sort of the downside of that, which then becomes sort of this, this totally understandable, but, but unfortunate um, sort of response to dismissing homeless people as either just, they're just trying to get a bed for the night, or they're just trying to get, you know, something else, but there's may not actually be a very real health concern. Um, and so homeless po- people end up, maybe, you know, falling through the cracks, um, with serious health issues because they are seen and sort of dismissed as sort of, uh, look, uh, seeking behavior rather than someone who genuinely needs, you know, the health, health, um, help. Um, and then there's the other reality, which I've seen is, you know, this, the unfortunate tendency for, um, like you mentioned, I love the story cause it's so true. Like discharging homeless people to nowhere, um, during the COVID pandemic, um, we were one of the only outreaches that was still regularly out in the street, um, because one third of the food pantries and soup kitchens in, in New York closed during the pandemic. Um, and I, we ran into like three or four people over the course of a couple of weeks who had just had surgery, su- serious surgery, um, and were now sleeping outside, um, because they were discharged because they technically didn't have any urgent need, like their, their case was not life-threatening. Uh, they were technically treated. So because the hospital wasn't going to get payment um, for sort of ongoing, you know, management of that care, uh, they discharged folks and they said, well, just go, you know, do a file appointment in three weeks or whatever. But this is someone who's sleeping on the sidewalk with an open, like staples in his stomach still. Um, and so there's this, you know, in this reality of how are you, you know, overcome, how are we overcoming the stigma Of homelessness and how are we providing that social safety net so that people without homes can access like the rehabilitation and the you know the the more long-term or or recovery or preventative medicine that most of us just take for granted i don't know if if i'm making i don't even know if there's a question there but i'm just thinking out loud about kind of the things that you shared and sort of some of the observations i've made over the last you know couple years
1: yeah, no, no, no. I, I mean, I resonate with with everything uh, that that you said, Josiah. I think, um, you know, I, on on the last point, um, and on my last point too, uh, there is more that our healthcare system can do when it comes to thinking about the social side of things, right? Um, you know, going off the story that I that I just mentioned, right? What could have we done better? Um, I think there are a few things, and and they relate somewhat to, to what you were just uh, alluding to. Um, one, well. We could ensure that we are systematically asking patients or screening patients for risk factors like homelessness and housing instability right and then two uh we can ensure that we are connecting patients with either a case manager right in the community or a center right that that is going to be in touch with the patient or a housing navigator right or someone we need to have better connections between our healthcare system and our social care systems, and that's something that's missing, and perhaps you know, an, an opportunity for organizations like like yours or, or many others that, that are trying to think of, okay, how can we better communicate, and how can we disrupt the silos that we currently live in, which unfortunately result in worse healthcare at the end of the day, uh, or worse health really for patients experiencing homelessness.
0: So. So that's, yeah. And I, I would love to, you know, continue like you and I, I'm hoping we can continue this conversation <laughs> I, maybe when well, we're not be recording it, but that just that idea of providing that sort of that connectivity um, between, you know, the, the health centers, the ERs, the, you know, whatever the surgeries and the outreach teams and the, um, the teams that are being contracted to, provide that wraparound care. Um, You know, I I think another thing I noticed during the pandemic was, you know, I remember the first time I needed the doctor's appointment um, and I did it via FaceTime. Um, And I remember thinking to myself, this is incredible. I'm never going to the doctor's office ever again because I can just now do it with my phone and I can FaceTime my doctor and and it's great. Um, And then it occurred to me how many homeless folks uh, are not accessing their doctor's because of a lack of technology, and is there a way for us to get creative with the delivery uh, of of healthcare services through technology to the unhoused community via drop-in centers or mobile outreach programs? And um, and I've been trying to you know I've been for the last year and a half been trying to figure out a way for us to increase access and through the delivery system of of getting you know using technology to get people connected to healthcare. Um, and I, we haven't landed on the magic, you know, we haven't solved it yet, but it's definitely something I'd love to, love to explore.
1: Yeah, no, I, I think that's, that's such a great topic, right? Thinking about uh, essentially digital equity, right? Like how do we make sure that everyone is receiving, uh, telehealth if, if they need it, right? Um, I think that it was one of the big changes that we saw over the last year or two years really since the COVID-19 pandemic started. And it's, it's one that has been on my mind a lot and one that I've been trying to figure out too, there is no clear solution, right? I think one, yes, everyone should have some sort of mobile device. Uh, And there have been some organizations that are providing uh, patients experiencing homelessness with mobile devices uh, from, I believe, uh, from insurers to even the government at times. Um, I think in, in California, they did that. If years ago or maybe during the obama administration so getting them phones or getting them somehow access whether it's you know a hub that you go to and that you can take a call etc is going to be very important um, they also need to know how to use it yeah. right they oftentimes you can have a phone but if you haven't ever really messed with it you know even called someone via facetime etc it might be difficult for you to navigate or for you or if you have to log on to zoom or whatever it might be um and so there have been some programs in which you have this digital navigator, right—a person who, at the point of discharge, will teach you how to use a device—and um, that I think is a newer model that we've seen um, over the last couple of years because of the COVID nineteen pandemic and this increasing awareness that telehealth is very important and needs to reach everyone. Um, and then three, I mean, you know, this, this broadband access—another problem, right? Like you got to make sure you have Wi-Fi if you're going to take a call. Yeah. Uh, or, or service right of any sort. And so um, that's another one. And, uh, you know, I, there were times back in the day where I would go to McDonald's <laughs> because that's where the Wi-Fi was. Uh, you're not gonna take a telehealth call or feel comfortable telling your doctor about all your personal issues <laughs> from McDonald's probably. Uh, and So, you know, how do we navigate that? So there are lots of different components to this digital equity problem that we need to be thinking about. And it's, it's one that should be top of mind, especially since we're seeing care being moved Either into the home or into technology.
0: Yeah, I, I man, it's so good. Um, so tell me, like, you know, from your experience, you know, working in this field, and um, you know, obviously, you know, with the your passion for inequity and, and marginalized communities, what what are some of the most um, sort of urgent issues that that we need to fix um, to? uh, get, I mean, we've just talked about a, a couple of them, right. But like when it comes to providing access to, to healthcare, um, you know, I, I think, again, I think there's a lot of stigma around homelessness, particularly around mental health. Um, that, that is, that is, a, that is an issue. Um, and I think that there's also a lot of people out there who misunderstand the physiological realities of mental health and, and, and how that, affects everything, um, which again, you would think nowadays would be obvious to most of us. Um, but unfortunately, it, you know, we still have, there's a lot of stigma there. Um, and I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts on, you know, how, you know, how we can better engage, um, the issues of, of mental health, or if there are other things that you think are, are really pertinent around homelessness that as far as healthcare is concerned, that are just, really urgent or maybe even low-hanging fruit that we can address um, where would you start
1: yeah that's such a great question um i've mostly been talking at the system level right but there are also things that we as individual care providers uh, can do and, and and i think you know one is uh going back to the story that i talked about with, with mr m um, there is a better way to approach that situation right Which as i mentioned involves one understanding the situation so what is life going to look like when you go home or wherever it is that we discharge you and what can i do as a provider to make that better so for example providers can say okay well if you're not going to a home uh, because your housing unstable uh maybe i should prescribe you a medication that you just have to take once a day instead of three times a day so long as the outcomes are the same right you want you don't want to you don't want to give someone some sort of inferior medication on just because that, that trade-off might not be worth it um, but thinking about those things right how do i prescribe that or should i prescribe this medication which maybe doesn't um, push you to go to the restroom five times a day as opposed to this one where you can go to the restroom one time a day because we know that people experiencing homelessness aren't going to have frequent access or reliable access to restrooms and therefore it might not take the medication that's making them go five times a day. And so thinking about you know our prescribing practices, um, even around cost, I mean, that's another big one, right? You don't want to prescribe a medication that they have to pay $200 for. They, they're never going to take it. Right, might <laughs> you know, as, well as well be a million. Right, right, it's like my parents who have a home aren't even going to take it, right? Because that's way too much to pay and many other people won't take it. So can we prescribe more generic alternative that maybe cost $5 or that hopefully doesn't cost anything, right, for these patients. Um, and so I think there are individual practices and considerations that we can take uh, when it comes to us as care providers, um, as doctors, nurses, social workers, et cetera, um, when thinking about what is your environment going to look like and how can I adjust around that? Um, so so that's, I think, the the, almost low-hanging fruit in a way but it's that that takes behavioral change right not in times uh, as you like to know behavioral change can be the hardest uh, instead of just saying okay at the systems level we're going to implement a program in which you click this button and then you'll call a coordinator to come talk to your patient about homelessness uh, and then they'll you know do everything so it might be low-hanging fruit in one sense and that we have the power essentially to fix that uh, but in another sense, it could actually be more difficult since it disrupts some of our traditional practices.
0: So, so good. Sorry, I'm I keep on saying that, but I'm just, in, just <laughs> reveling in the moment. Um, so, so how do, so so where do we start to educate and like the prescribers and how, and how do we again change the the narrative around homelessness when it comes to um, you know, medical professionals and, and insurance companies. And like, cause I know for me, like if I, as a nonprofit, right, like we, we have to apply for every dollar that we get, we have to like fight for funding. And, um, and, and I think there's a lot of people who are looking for the, you know, the biggest bang for the smallest buck. Um, and when it comes to homelessness and it comes to medical care, uh, you don't often get the biggest bang for the smallest buck. It's more of a you get what you pay for um, kind of situation. So I'm wondering, like, how do we can, how can we go about or what would you tell me as, you know, as, as a medical professional talking to a, you know, the CEO of a nonprofit? Um, what can I do to help, like, change the narrative and, and help providers, healthcare care providers um, think about those things differently?
1: Yeah, I think uh, there are a few things that come to mind. And uh, something that's missing, you know, from medical school curricula often, not always, but often, uh, and also resident curricula or just the the programs in general are interactions, like real one-on-one interactions with people who are experiencing homelessness. And so thankfully here at 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 Harvard, um, we have some exposure in that Sometimes a doctor will bring in a patient who has experienced uh, some sort of serious life event. It might not be homelessness, it might be something else. Um, and we'll all listen and we'll, you know, they'll have a conversation and we'll try to really empathize and learn and um, understand you know, the context of, of these individuals' lives. And so I think the, the first thing uh, is basically doctors from medical students to residents to attendings who have been practicing for 30 years um, could benefit from just hearing patients out because oftentimes, I mean, yes, if you're a doctor, if you're an attending at, let's say, MGH, you were going to see a patient experiencing homelessness, no doubt. But are you going to spend an hour hearing their story, understanding how they live, what they've gone through, and the barriers that they're going to face upon discharge? No, right? As a medical student with more time to see patients and to be at the bedside, even I'd have a hard time spending all that time because I have competing priorities, I have other patients to see. And so the question is, how can we basically provide this education to doctors, medical students, et cetera, um, in a way also that isn't exploitative, right? We wanna make sure that we're not just bringing in patients experiencing homelessness for the benefit of doctors, right? Uh, We wanna make sure that it's a comfortable setting, a trauma-informed setting for these patients who are experiencing homelessness. But I think the point is, right, if we could have uh, some sort of connection between our medical institutions, you know, and and community health centers or just health centers or, or community centers in general, nonprofits, et cetera, a better communication and perhaps um, almost having, you know, people that you serve, people that you help and that you see on a day-to-day um, be spokespeople, right, and and be folks that can talk to us and let us know, look, look, this is what you're missing and this is why it's, why it's important. Now, it's not all on the nonprofit. I think doctors and the medical institution need to realize how important it is, right, for them to listen. Uh, and that's, I think, uh, I don't want to say very hard, but it, they have so many competing priorities that I think it'll be hard, right, to institute some sort of regular practice that allows for that. But in an ideal world, you know, I see one in which we have more of these communications, more of these listening sessions, because already, you know, you can go to the MGH and we have grand rounds every week, right? You hear about some sort of medical condition and a patient and something that happened, but it always focuses on the clinical side. Can we have more of those that focus on the social side, right? On these life experiences that matter a lot and that we can then hopefully think about as we treat the next patient and inform our practice, our prescribing practices, etc., cetera, um, around their care. So um, hopefully that, that answers your question.
0: It absolutely does. Um, and. And then the, the follow-up would be, how do we, you know, how do we encourage, um, you know, empathy from the standpoint of, you know, the, in, the the funders and the insurance companies and the, I mean, like, 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 is there a way for us to like, even like the people, like you mentioned Medicaid and like the access to, to Medicaid in different states. And um, I know there's just so much stigma um, around, you know, homeless folks, you know, being considered, you know, why don't they just get a job? You know, that's how I get my medical care. I go out and I work, you know, but um, of course, or so people say, um, but how does that like factor into our, um, our conversation around access and um, healthcare on a, on a, on a macro level with within employment structures? And I mean, how do you, cause like I, I think we, I mentioned earlier, like um, you know, what, what is homelessness and healthcare, like look like in the united states versus homelessness and healthcare, care in, in a different like uh, in canada for example or in a place where there's socialized medicine i'm just curious what your thoughts are as someone who's studying this like what are some of the the pros and cons of um you know sort of our medical system with regards to homelessness that you may not see in in say a, a different environment
1: yeah no uh that's a great question so i think one thing we're seeing a lot uh in the united states that I believe is unique to the United States as it relates to healthcare and homelessness is that uh, you have a lot more programs and initiatives that are put that that are raising tons and tons of money, right? So, for example, like Kaiser United Healthcare, they are paying for housing weirdly, right? They are doing that. MGH, they're thinking about it, right? There are hospitals, there are insurers that are going out there and saying, you know what? We're going to put millions of dollars into housing and homelessness um, and food insecurity and education and so forth uh, because of X, Y, and Z. Now, I think we could have a whole discussion on whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, I think in general, uh, the public sector and our government should be doing more around this, right? And uh, there, there could be competing incentives for why an MGH or an insurer might be doing this kind of work, and are they best suited to do that kind of work? Do they have the expertise required to ensure that patients experiencing homelessness or who are low income are going into that housing, are getting the care that they need, those wraparound services and so forth? That's a whole big question and a discussion, but um, I think that's unique, right? That is unique uh, to what we're seeing here. Not that the UK, right, for example, um, I. I will say I'm not an expert in what the UK, Canada, et cetera, does. Right. But um, just from having conversations and from reading a little bit, they are doing work around social care and so forth and so forth, but they have more robust social care systems in general. Right. And so they don't need to think about, should our hospital system be building this also because, you know, their their hospitals are often public hospitals. Um, they do have private hospitals, but um, they have more than public than we do. And so they, they have uh, a different strategy when it comes to thinking about health and homelessness than uh, our healthcare system here in the U.S. does. I, I think in general, then, it's the building housing, right, The really these massive projects that are unique to the U.S., uh, the coordination uh, and the screening that I talked about earlier, mm-hmm. I think has been seen across different countries as well.
0: So I was just saying that it's it's interesting to me, the stereotype of, of homeless people being lazy, it, I think, is a is a is a significant detail. Um, I also think that our system of connecting healthcare to employment is a significant factor, especially for people who I meet in the street who are working like minimum wage jobs. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're cobbling together a lot of um, employment opportunities to try to scrape by, but none of them out- offer health care access. None of them offer. So I'm just wondering from your perspective, how can we be solutions oriented? What what do you think is maybe some tangible things that we can do to improve and increase access and um, the the things you mentioned in there you know earlier in terms of creating that more equitable uh healthcare system um, but what are some things that you think are like we can do this to improve the Medicaid process or improve access to healthcare services for the homeless community?
1: Yeah, uh, another big, big question, Josiah, but happy, happy to tackle it. Um, there are so many things that we can do in general to improve healthcare access and delivery for people experiencing homelessness. Uh, I think one, we first need to ensure that everyone has. A primary care provider. Everyone has a home that they can go to and see a doctor when they need a doctor. Um, that means we need to ensure everyone has health insurance. Uh, that means we need to ensure that the Medicaid program is operating in every state and covering everyone it should cover, which currently isn't the case, as, as we've talked about earlier. Um, that means that uh, it also needs to be affordable, right? Even if you're providing someone with health insurance. They're not going to show up if they have to pay, you know, eighty dollars just to see their PCP, uh, which I saw with, with my family, right? When they did have health insurance, they didn't want to go because they couldn't afford the payment. And so we have to make sure that those co payment agreements are are low enough for patients to actually show up to the doctor. Um, I think more importantly, though, we need to take a step back and look at health holistically, right? Like the health, the medical industry is important. We need doctors when someone's sick but we also need to think about how to prevent illness uh, in people who are experiencing homelessness. So really, honestly, the biggest thing we can do when it comes to health for people experiencing homelessness is to empower them economically, right? Ensure that they are being paid a living wage, uh, whether regardless of which job they have. Uh, ensure they have a home if, if they want a home, right? Um, and ensure that they have a case manager or social worker who is working with them to help them advance on this housing continuum, um, and also on the healthcare continuum. So, like looking a bit upstream and saying, how can we ensure that you don't have to have, say, your 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 foot amputated, right? Because you had uncontrolled diabetes or something. Like, how can we ensure we don't reach that point? Like, that's how we should be thinking about healthcare delivery for not just people experiencing homelessness, in my opinion, but for everyone, right? We have to take this prevention lens, uh, and so. I think that's you know looking upstream a bit to the housing, the employment, the education uh, for children, right? And young young folks experiencing homelessness is super important. And then looking a bit more downstream on the healthcare side, make, making sure everyone has health insurance, making sure everyone has a doctor and can see a doctor, and also um, making sure that the providers and clinicians who are seeing patients are accountable, right, to the care of these patients. It's very easy right now, in many hospitals for a patient experiencing homelessness to show up and be viewed as almost as a revenue machine, right? Where because they have all these illnesses, they are actually providing the hospital with revenue. And we are thankfully transitioning into more of a value-based care world where clinicians have to think about, okay, how am I going to prevent illness? because I'm being paid differently in a way that doesn't incentivize volume, but rather incentivizes value. Um, us moving into that world, I think is going to do tremendous things for people experiencing homelessness and all other medically underserved folks.
0: That's amazing. Um, and I'm just, I'm, I'm getting, I'm catching a vision for what you're describing and I, I just can't, yeah, I can't think of, you know, how, just it's just so important right it just changes the game completely um tell me you know you've been working obviously you you know you you already described sort of your childhood and the experience you've had with homelessness yourself but now um you know with with you studying at harvard and um, going into this this world i'm wondering if you could tell us a story or two of people that you've met uh who are in the street uh who needed access to medicine and how your experience, and how your medical, uh, you know, expertise, and your your education, and all those things have allowed you to kind of engage in those specific cases, and what you took away from them.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, one story I'll actually tell you it happened outside the hospital, uh, very related to everything you just asked. Us. So this was uh, during I think I was maybe right after my first year of medical school, if I remember correctly. I went home uh, to the Antelope Valley in California. Uh, and, and as I was driving to go pick up some some food, uh, I saw a man just sitting there on the, on the side of the highway at, at the, at where, where you um, get off the freeway. And it was about 105 degrees outside. It was summertime uh, and he was wearing a black sweater hoodie on, uh, you know, just had a sign that I couldn't read because he, he, he had dropped a sign. And so when I get, went to get food, um, I felt like the man needed help, He really needed help. Uh, so I also got, got, ordered some food for him, uh, parked my car, went up to him. And uh, I tapped him, I don't think he expected me. Uh, and I said, Hey, man, like, what's going on? You know, just trying to talk to him just like any, any other person, right? Like, that, he is a person. Uh, nothing, nothing strange about that. Uh, and then he kind of looks at me takes a while uh, and finally opens up. And he, what he tells me is, uh, he was just kicked out of his home, uh, because he has schizophrenia. And unfortunately, uh, the, his caregiver could no longer handle him because he wasn't on his medications because he didn't have access to his medications. He didn't have them at all. He couldn't get refills. Uh, and we went back and forth and, you know, I, I asked him if he had tried the clinic that was down the street. Um, uh, he hadn't heard of it before. Um, The point is though, he was on the streets because he was a patient with schizophrenia, uh, without access to medicine. And that just shows you how, you know, lack of access to healthcare, lack of access, access to vital medicines, whether it's for schizophrenia or others can really spiral, right. And result in a patient being homeless at the end of the day. Um, I wish at that moment in time, I had more to help to help him, really, Um, I couldn't do more besides say, you know, here's some food, there's a clinic, I really want you to go. Um, He wanted to stay and sit and that was, you know, okay. Um, But that was one story that will stay with me for for forever, really, because uh, the fact that this is a patient with schizophrenia, and we really need to help people like that. The other story uh, that comes to mind is during my second year of medical school, where when I was here at Mass General Hospital, um, and I met a patient who I'll just nickname, uh, Mr. V. Um, and uh, this patient uh, came in with a diagnosis of HIV and AIDS, a new diagnosis, very sick. Uh, he was coughing. Uh, he had all the symptoms uh, of uh, AIDS crisis. And um, I, I got to know him very well. Uh, he told me about his background. He was actually from Los Angeles. And so we connected on that level too. Uh, and by the end of it, uh, we we did all we could and he got better got so much better you know we gave him the big we gave him the uh, antibacterials all the medications that he needed in order to fight the illness that he was going through and but the issue was that we didn't do anything for his housing he was homeless he came into us from a shelter uh, and we really had no solution to that we didn't even really have a connection to the housing ecosystem in the greater boston area and so when it came time to discharge him to the to home uh we asked him if he had a friend uh, who would allow him to spend the night uh, w- with him. And so uh, the friend thankfully said yes, we discharged him. Uh, but two weeks later, Mr. V came back uh, to the hospital because of anxiety, uh, because his friend no longer wanted him there. And he was supposed to be there for a temporary stay. He was there for two weeks at this point. Uh, his friend said, you know, it's time like you need to go. He had nowhere to go. Uh, he went to sleep outside he was sleeping on the streets uh where his medications were stolen he was assaulted uh and then he showed up to the emergency department as mentioned with anxiety uh and also stolen medications where uh not my team but a different team saw him and provided him with a refill and so uh i think this is one of those moments where you know i feel like we failed them as, as a healthcare system and as really healers i mean we were supposed to be healers we were supposed to you know think about the patient holistically and we failed to do that and Uh, thinking back, you know, like, what could I I have done? What will I do better in the future? Um, One, I will continue hearing these patients, hearing them out, understanding them to the best of my ability so that I can help them. Uh, And three, I'm sorry, and two is really connecting them to the greater housing ecosystem. So, you know, what we tried to do after that moment, I worked with a team uh, with Dr. Alistair Martin and a few others in order to improve the way that we deliver healthcare for patients experiencing homelessness at mgh that meant screening that meant hiring a housing specialist and that also meant committing mgh and all the other hospitals in the area to permanent supportive housing to funding that uh, and we worked on that initiative for a while but um, the idea of let's do better for these patients right we can uh, and and we see a path forward so let's tackle it the COVID 19 pandemic unfortunately hit at that point, And uh, hospitals like MGH said, we can't take on any projects, we're not going to add any new staff, et cetera, et cetera. So we've been on pause and said, but uh, there have been many instances where we are seeing hospitals, clinicians, uh, really these advocates who are coming and saying, hey, we need to do a better job of delivering healthcare for people experiencing homelessness. So are we're going to do that is by screening better, is by understanding their stories and and really delivering care in the way that fits their context best, uh, in addition to connecting them with a larger housing ecosystem through a case manager or a housing navigator. And then ultimately, what we all want is somehow to house them. Uh, and we don't know, we don't have a solution yet, you know, there are many groups who are trying to build housing and so forth, but uh, that is that is what everyone deserves, a house. Uh, and so anyway, those are two stories that really will stick with me forever and that kind of showed me where the gaps were and showed me where we need to go.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and those stories obviously just triggered a slew of stories in my head uh, in terms of, I mean, I know a guy in East Harlem who um, had a traumatic brain injury and had seizures. um, And he was living in a shelter. And every time he had a seizure, uh, his prescription bottle would fall out of his pocket and people would see the prescription bottle and they would steal it. Um, because they would they were hoping that it would be some sort of opioid or, or something that they could um, they could sell or, or use right. and, and he would end up he was on Medicaid and they would only fill you know one prescription every 30 days or so. So even getting a refill for him was was a challenge because if it has happened regularly, just having access to that medication um, is just so challenging. And then I, I knew another gentleman who um, was very like learning disabled, Um, he he was like a, you know, like a 15 year old sort of in a 50 year old's body. Um, and he was in the shelter and, and was just, you know, just chronically abused and taken advantage of, um, because he was an easy target. I think even just that vulnerability that people in the street experience, um, in addition to, I think you mentioned earlier, the, the, the increased health issues that, you know, living in the street just sort of intrinsically brings with infections and, you know, um, you know, health issues that are, um, you know, cro- chronic health issues that don't get better when you're not sleeping. Um, and you're not, you know, taking care of yourself, eating healthy food. Um, and, and there's so many, you know, health implications to survival living in, in that sort of constant fight or flight mode. Um, you know, I, I tell people a lot, you can't live your best life homeless just can't. Um, and so, you know, trying to access care and, and I love what you're, you know, in terms of the vision that you're casting for where we can go. I just really, really appreciate that. Um, so let me, let me, let me try to land the plane a little bit here. Uh, I know I've taken a ton of your time. Thank you for your patience and gracious, uh, graciousness with me. Um, in terms of my technology woes, so people who are listening, you maybe this has taken like four different tries to get David to get to get him together. So he's been very gracious and patient with me. Um, if you could convince everybody listening, um, one thing—if uh, you knew, like okay, I could say one thing that would resonate and that would stick, and everyone listening would walk away with a with a maybe a corrected perspective um, around the issue of homelessness and or healthcare in this case, um, what would you say? What would you say if you were like, okay, I know I have a captive audience, and I, if I'm going to say this, and then it'll stick, and people will walk away thinking differently. What would you say to people?
1: Oh, such a big question, uh, Josiah. All the, all the big questions. <laughs> I love that. Um, I think I, will, I would say people experiencing homelessness are – a diverse group of people. Um, I think that often gets lost when people uh, think about this group. I think we often uh, jump to conclusions as to what this person looks like, who they are, where they're from, what mistake they made, etc. And I, I would I would push against that, right? I would say, Look, I experienced homelessness in the past right? You're listening to me. And if we talk on the street, you're not going to say, hey, this guy probably experienced homelessness at one point. Um, I have a few friends who are also in that situation, and you would not think that, right? There are women who experience homelessness who have entirely different experiences than men who experience homelessness because of abuse, right? And all these other issues that come with being a woman on the streets. And there are families with children, right, when my parents in, I believe it was 2019, were temporarily living in a motel, across from them was a family with three little children uh, who were experiencing homelessness and that they had lost their house, were temporarily living in this motel, uh, and had nowhere else to go. And I can go on and on about the different faces of homelessness. But, you know, the, the point is that this is a very diverse, heterogeneous group that is unique, um, that, you know, requires uh, empathy, right, that requires us to just take a step back and say, hey, like, these are people, right, these are people, they have their life experiences, they aren't homeless, because they made a mistake. And you know, they they are just intrinsically uh, at fault uh, of of, of something. Um, These are these are folks who somehow, because of Likely the, the world in which we live in, they ended up being homeless uh, and we need to do something about that. And so um, I think that's that's the final message that I would leave readers or viewers and listeners with um, the homeless population or people experiencing homelessness. We're all around. right? We're, we got We all have to do something. We're all people. We're all unified in one way or another.
0: That's beautiful. And it reminds me of one of my favorite, uh, I was at a conference once and and it was someone talking about trans rights. um, And the person said, uh, when you've met one trans person, guess what? You've met one trans person. And I've taken that uh, from, I think it applies to homelessness too. Like if you've met one homeless person, guess what? You've met one homeless person. There's everybody's situation is unique. Um, The last question I promise is the last one. Um, what are some things that you do on a regular basis or that anyone listening can do to, to help their homeless neighbors? I mean, I think um, a lot of people assume, you know, look, they'll say, look, David, you're, you're, you're a med student at Harvard. You know, Josiah, you're the CEO of a nonprofit that helps people. Like, you guys are helping people because this is what you do. Um, but what can I do? And so I would say, what are some things that you do to help your homeless neighbors that anyone can do?
1: yeah um well i think anyone can advocate right i I really do i mean advocacy comes in many forms it could come through a simple blog post for example right saying hey this legislation that is going to tear apart everyone's tent encampment is is not right right i think advocacy you can write a blog you can you know start a podcast right you can uh Film a video. You can write to your to your representatives. Like there are many ways in which you can advocate for people experiencing homelessness and really many other marginalized groups. Um, so I'd say that's definitely one thing. Just find the way that you um, that you uh, that you like to advocate and then push down that route. Uh, I think the other thing is you know this this will never solve the problem. You're going back to the story that I talked about. You know how I went up to a person experiencing homelessness and I said, hey, like here's here's lunch, right? Like That is never going to solve the problem of homelessness but it is something that we can do in the moment to just make someone's life a little bit better right acknowledging folks you know whether you don't have to go out and buy a meal or anything right like i understand like a lot of folks don't have time you know they're going to their job or whatever it might be but if you do have time that'd be amazing um if you don't have time a simple acknowledgement i think i think would go a long way and so these are like things that um i think we can do on a daily basis Uh, To really just improve the way that we interact with each other, Um, not just people experiencing homelessness, but everyone, right? Because they are part of everyone.
0: I love that. I love that so much because it's so true. It, it, you know, the way we interact with people in the grocery store and at the gas station and you know at the mall, like there's there's interactions like I I used I always used to tell people uh, rules of social engagement apply like like just be a human, like see the person, acknowledge them. Um, so just, it's just so beautiful. David, I just want to thank you again for your patience with me and my technology woes. Uh, but most of all your, your work, um, your story, um, I love how you're just leveraging, uh, every ounce of energy and, and, and and time that you have, um, to, to make this world a little bit a little bit better. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me and thank you for uh, all the work that you're doing.
1: Well, thanks so much, Josiah, for having me. Really appreciate it and love the conversation.
0: I am so grateful that you took the time to listen to this episode of the Neighbors With No Doors podcast. I hope you found it helpful and empowering. Just so you know, I'm releasing a book that is also going to be called Neighbors With No Doors, and I would love for you to check it out. You can find it at neighborswithnodores.com. You can like our Facebook page or follow along on Instagram and Twitter. I'd like to thank my producer, Rex Harson for helping me put this together, as well as the many guests who gave me the gift of their time and their story. Have a great day. We'll see you next time.